Bill Grandy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Uh, in a sense, glad to be back because uh, <laughs> we, That's right. we tried we have... this once before. And, uh, <laughs> technical difficulties happened. <laughs> yep, we have the lost tapes, the the <laughs> the missing the missing interview that is is being rehashed right now. But that's okay. We you asked to you said hey let's do it again. Let's just give it a little bit of time. And uh, we've we've let our our minds air out, so we've completely forgotten everything that we said to one another. And uh, we're back to do it again. So I'm I'm excited. It's great to have you back. Yeah, when uh, when Josh uh, sent me a message being like, hey, um, you know, let's do this again, and he brought up something i don't remember what he's like you you said this one thing that was really interested and i'm like i don't remember anything i said so no spoilers because uh i want this to be a surprise for me too i, I don't remember what i said 10 minutes ago let alone like months ago right but that's perfect and and what better way to kind of bring this all back together and celebrate St. George's Day. So happy St. George's Day, gentlemen. Uh it's maybe we all slay a, a dragon today. That's right. <laughs> What a perfect day to, to kind of come back together. Um, in the, I actually, you know, in a future episode, we're going to have to talk about this, but in the lead up to this, I actually found this really cool anecdote where the, um, in 1572, the same year that um, Della Gauthier, um ended up um, publishing his treatise on uh, fencing, uh, in Bologna, there was a University of Bologna instructor like he was a professor at the university of bologna says that he found a dragon outside of bologna and and this guy legitimately he was he was the brother of the pope so like his whole reason he was a a, um like a a professor at the university to begin with is purely nepotism right but (laughs) and he would he wrote so later on there's like this big catalog of books that was written um and there's like this really detailed account about this dragon outside of bologna so apparently he brought it back to the university and he was showing it off to people. So, I, you know, just super cool. So awesome. in, in honor of St. George's Day, you know, we've, we've got to keep dragons in mind here because there would be dragons. There would so, be dragons. Yeah. Um, so Who's to say he could, didn't find a dragon? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? He might have. Maybe, maybe that was the last dragon. Maybe he killed Draco. That son of a biscuit. <laughs> um, Dragonheart is by far the greatest medieval movie that's ever made, by the way. I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, but no. Well, we'll just we'll just move we'll on there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Bill. <laughs> Carry on, my wayward son. I'm sorry, guys. Sorry to disappoint you. All right. So, but this episode isn't about dragons. It's about Bill. So, Bill, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your martial arts background and what drew you to Hema? Uh, so, when I was a kid, um, I started doing foil fencing at a local rec center uh, because I just I loved swords. Um, in general, you know, I t- anytime anyone asks me how I got started, I, I my my offhand joke is too much Prince's Bride as a child. So, I got into sport fencing. Um, I wanted something that was a little more, to be totally honest, I wanted something that looked more like movie fighting, right? Uh, So as I got older, I got really heavy into Aikido. Uh, I had done that uh, throughout probably all my middle school and high school years and a little into college. Um, And Aikido is primarily an unarmed art, but it also has a sword art to it, a sword component to it. Um, And when I was a kid, that was the only thing around that had swords besides the sport. I got into kendo for a while. Uh, so 
these were all great, but they weren't exactly what I wanted. When I was a little kid, you know, I, I grew up grew up watching night movies and things like that that I just I really wanted to I wanted to be a knight. So during my teen years, I was also really heavily involved in theater, so I got into stage combat. And as I started doing that and into college, I started meeting more and more people who were reading fencing treatises. They were saying, hey, did you know there were all these awesome things that were written in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and they talked about how to fight. Uh, so there were people like, for example, Brad Waller, who was looking into Murazzo in the 90s. Um, and that's how I started being like, whoa, these things exist. And that was kind of my gateway into all of this. Uh, I started seriously doing this in the um, in the late 90s when I was in college. There was a group at the Virginia Academy of Fencing, which is where I eventually um, professionally started teaching uh, and taught there for 20 years. Uh, there was a group already started that was looking into these treatises, and they were sort of coming from a, a stage combat background, but also looking into how do we actually hit each other with this stuff? And that's, that's really where I was like, yes, I'm hooked. Uh, and, you know, back in 1997, 98, whenever that was, um, we were putting on fencing masks and getting Shanai and having a blast and beating the crap out of each other, but also being like, hey, why doesn't that look like what we're, we're seeing in these pictures? Why doesn't that look like what we're reading in these texts? And yeah. that's, that's kind of how it started for me. <laughs> That's cool. So you've, I mean, you've seen so much growth in HEMA in general. Do you feel like fencing today better reflects the fencing of the treatises, or do you think that we've kind of varied to some degree? Uh, I think that is both a yes and no question. Uh, I think that in some ways we do look like, or let me rephrase that. In some ways, we have a much, much, much better understanding. And a big part of that is because of the internet and being able to share things and share our research and share uh, what we've been working on uh, with so many people that things progress very quickly. I uh, also think that a lot of it, elements of it, have sort of developed its own kind of branch of evolution. And how could it not? You know, we don't live in the 15th century. We don't eat the same things they do. We don't do the same exercises they do. We don't have the same culture or even aesthetic appeal. Uh, you know, the vast majority of the things that we do is so different. Even the way we walk is probably different just because of those things. And so it would be impossible for our versions of these arts not to have a different look to them, to not have a different um, just kind of general movement pattern. Uh, even things like if you compare Chinese martial arts and Japanese martial arts, you might have things that functionally are exactly the same, but aesthetically they look different because cultural aesthetics af affect how you move. And I know the catch-all phrase that people like to say is that uh, the human body only moves so many different ways, and that's true to an extent but there are so many other factors that change how a martial art evolves. So I think yeah. that there's no way our martial arts today look exactly like what they did. Cause we don't dance. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. We don't get Speak our groove on from the day, we start, <laughs> the day we start moving. But even when we look at dance, there's plenty of people who are hardcore dancers who do HEMA 
but they probably don't do the same dances. No, some people do. Um, some people research historical dances, but you know, modern dance has a different aesthetic appeal <laughs> than, you know, the dances that Maximilian True. would be hosting. And that means that, um, in a lot of cases, the way I do a passing step might very well look completely different than the way that a 15th century German would do a passing step. Or for all I know, an Italian may have done their passing step different than a German did. So, well, they would have done it better. That we can say for sure. I could totally see Francesco Gonzaga twerking. I mean, <laughs> but so, and I guess, you know, that's, that's actually really interesting too, right? Cause I think a lot of times when we think about cultural context, I don't, I don't know if we always consider fashion as, as a thing. Cause I think one of the things that popped into my head was fashion, right? Like, um, I know there are a lot of folks now who are taking HEMA into a more historical direction and actually starting to think, Hey, how do clothes affect the way that I would fight? You know, I think especially in the armor community and you can speak to this, um, in, and maybe we can segue in our next question with this as well, is that a lot of people will start to fight in period shoes. Like they'll deliberately use period shoes with their armor to see like how that affects like fighting in armor and, and different surfaces and stuff like that. Um, there was a really interesting conversation on the HEMA discord about shoes. And um, I did not know that heels started to become more popular in the later portion of the 16th century. So before that, the style was um, like the, the, the shoe of the time, the really famous shoe. Um, and I think uh, Owen Towns pointed this out to me uh, in there really up to like the 1550s was the cow toe shoe, which was basically a zero drop shoe, right? So like there was no elevation in the shoe. It was, it was a relatively light shoe. It's, it's kind of what we would think today of as a zero drop shoe. And then they started adding heels for fashion and for society. And how would that affect fencing? I don't know. I mean, do we see like, changes and and because we start to see the heel really start to develop from that point forward and become like a standard of a shoe um so i don't know having done various different types of fencing in period shoes and modern shoes my my opinion is that yes it does change things um the flip side is it doesn't completely change things. Uh, I know some gotcha. people make a, a big deal of like, if you do it in period shoes, it completely changes everything. It doesn't. Uh, but there's also a difference between wearing them to fence and wearing them in your day-to-day -day life. Because if you wear a specific type of shoe every day, your foot muscles develop differently. You walk mm -hmm. a little bit differently. Right. So does it functionally change things? I don't think so. Does it change what um, our perception is of how people actually did it? I think it does. If you want to understand how rapier fencing looked in the 17th century, you should fence in, in 17th century shoes and you should really give it a shot because you start to notice the way you lunge is subtly different. Um, and it's just like uh, people who do a lot of uh, hiking in the, the low-tech type of shoes, or, or even moccasins for that matter. They tend to walk a little bit differently. So it yeah. does change things. It does yeah. change the muscle groups that they use. Does it functionally change the martial art? Mm, not, not enough to say, oh, the, you, you can't understand it without it. <coughs> but I do think it does. It help, if your goal is historical accuracy and 
let me rephrase that because that's a loaded word, historical accuracy. If your goal is to understand how they really did it, <coughs> the footwear helps you understand it. Um, if your goal is just to, to win your bouts, the footwear doesn't really change anything. Right, yeah. I remember when Roland Warcheka made that video about like walk medieval people walking and everybody was giving him a really hard time. And then um, a few months later, I had switched to uh, wearing like uh, barefoot shoes at work because mm-hmm. um, I work in a laboratory and we have concrete floors in the lab. And um, and so I, I, sw- I got some basically some dress barefoot shoes, like zero drop shoes with mm-hmm. like a really flexible sole. Right. And I was walking and I kept basically going for a standard heel strike on, on my foot yeah. because I was used to wearing something with a heel, right? And that's just the way yeah. you kind of learn to walk. And so my, I kept bruising my heel. So I started looking at videos on how to walk in barefoot shoes appropriately. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, the guy the guy that was doing it was walking just like Roland. And I was like, yeah. hey, wait a second. <laughs> I've seen this before. Uh, uh, I and, know. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I just... I. I just thought it was incredibly ironic. <laughs> yeah, when I um, so when I was younger, I'd uh, I, I wore moxins when I was like eleven or twelve every day uh, because I made them in Boy Scouts and thought they were cool. And that was my first time of realizing that, like, when I walked on concrete, I had to change how I would walk, otherwise my heel would hurt. And then, um, you know, I did fencing forever. Uh, I remember the first time I uh, wore. I think they were just like martial arts shoes, the, the kind that are like super, super thin soles. Uh, and I was doing, doing it first um, for foil. And I went to lunge and I remember hitting my heel so hard. that I was like, holy crap, I got to stop. Like it hurt so badly. Yeah. And then I, you know, I, I learned to adjust for it. So I, I've used a lot of different types of shoes for things now. And while I might have my personal preferences for if I want to win a tournament in general, um, I, I, I can change between shoes and adapt a little bit, but for me, that's a, that's a personal, um, personal quest in that I just want to understand it better, but you bring up just clothing in general. Uh, if we look at wrestling, if we look at uh, a lot of the 15th century style wrestling, there's a uh, leg grabs where you completely, uh, wrap your arm around the person's leg by the 16th century. If we look at, uh, Auerswald, for example, he has a lot of actions where he doesn't wrap his arm around he grabs the cloth because the pants are different so he might uh grab at the uh the the fabric around the thigh whereas tallhofer would show reaching all the way uh between the legs and grabbing the back of the doublet and you know is is one better or worse well it depends on the clothing you're wearing right right yeah that's interesting in fact most people who practice ringing nowadays tend to do it with pants that uh if you pull them on on them hard enough they're probably going to fall uh they might be strung on or something like that but period pants were usually pointed to the doublet and so i don't see many people do a lot of the pant grab ones because they kind of have their own silent agreement that they're not going to pull someone's pants off right but that's (laughs) all the time in wrestling treatises so i think we should probably move on to question three here okay yeah, I, real quick before we move on. Okay. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but fencing with, with pockets, right? Have you ever had a, like a cross guard go and like catch your pocket and just like pull your pants off? No. <laughs> I've seen it happen. Uh, I refuse. So coming up from a sport fencing background, you didn't fence with pockets because that was dangerous. 
So when HEMA, everyone doing it, I'm like, no, guys, stop this. And then I've seen it happen many times where uh, I saw one guy's pants get completely ripped. Uh, like it, the, the point got caught in the guy's pop, pocket and ripped the whole upper part of his pants. So. Yeah, I've got this this problem where sometimes I'll, I'll bring, because I guess maybe I bring my, my Cotolunga Strutter, my Cotolunga Alta, like really close to my hip, almost like kind of like gunslinging, you know, like having my hand down on my hip. Like, you <laughs> oh, you mean it's caught on your own pants? <laughs> on my own pants, yeah. Okay. My cross guard just goes into my, grabs my own pants, and it, it's an S cross guard, so of course naturally it's going to kind of like hook in there. It's just, they find their way into everything, right? That's what the Anonymo yeah. says. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just Pull my own pants down. Yeah, it's happened multiple <laughs> times. Wow. More more often than I care to admit, I'll be honest. <laughs> All right, You're a so, brave man, Joshua. Yeah, to well, admit that on a hey, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, we're all about honesty here, Stephen. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> so let's go to a situation where you probably won't be pulling off your own pants, which will be armored fencing. So um, what got you into armored fencing, and what are some of the most salient things that you've learned um, about fencing through fencing and armor? Uh, so what got me into it was too many movies as a kid. Uh, I always loved That's any right. kind of medieval or Renaissance movie, uh, no matter how bad they were. So, yes, I have seen Dragonheart. <laughs> but uh, when I was in college, I'm like, I'm doing this right. I'm, I'm going to start commissioning armor. And I, um, I commissioned my first piece, which was the, the torso piece called the Quiris from a guy named, um, John Gruber, who doesn't do it anymore. But, uh, I was 20 years old. It was a lot of money (laughs) that I saved up for. And that was my first piece. And I went from there. Armor has always just captured my imagination. Everything from just the look of it to the actual function of it. Um, it has changed my understanding of armor or I shouldn't say changed. Um, it's evolved with my understanding of fencing, both in armor and out of armor. I think people who do Fiore, uh, in the earlier days had a step ahead of a lot of the people did the German stuff because Fiore is arranged where it's kind of obvious that armor is just part of the arts, right? Whether, whether you're wearing armor or not, you're still training all part of the same art. The way the Lichtenauer treatises tend to be set up is there's an armored combat component and an unarmored combat component. And superficially, it makes it seem like those are two completely different things, even though I don't believe for a second that's how, uh, how these writers intended that to be. That just happened to be how they organized their writings. Um, but I really very much view them as just two sides of the same coin because there are so many techniques that happen in one that in the other variants, armored or unarmored, you still see the technique, but it's, it's, it might be more frequent or less frequent. And for that matter, if we look at a lot more of the, um, the 15th century treatises, we see a ton of actions with wrestling in them. We see a ton of actions with grabbing onto the blade for unarmored actions. Right. And I know there's a lot of people who tell me like, Oh, you know, grab it on your blade. That's all. That's the fancy stuff, right? That's, that's not for practical fighting. If you do armored combat, it's not fancy. That's the norm. You are always constantly grabbing your blade. You're constantly closing in to wrestle. And the thing is that, um, the more I've done, uh, both sides of these, the more I blend the techniques and same thing I've seen for other people. If uh, I see, 
people who didn't do armor for the longest time, it never occurs to them to grab their blade in, in uh, a regular bout, even if they've trained those techniques. But when they start doing armor regularly, it just happens naturally. They, uh, they see a, an opportunity to grab the blade, they do it, and afterwards go, oh, cool, I did that one technique from that one treatise. And yeah. it had never occurred to them to do it until they just regularly trained armor. So it's just a lot of those actions just become more and more natural. Uh, in addition to the fact that the people training these, um, at least in the 15th century stuff, the people training those things trained armor all the time. Um, even if they weren't of the knightly class, even if they were required once a month to put on a breastplate and helmet to help guard their town, they still trained with armor. <laughs> yeah, that's... um. That's really interesting. I mean, what are what are some of the things that you think have that people could really stand? Like, what are some some lessons in general that you think if you could just say, "Hey, these are some best practices that I think that I've gained from my experience in armor." Like, these are things that I think you can impart into your own training. What would they be? Uh, it's that's a great question. It's also a complicated one because um, it's hard to distill yeah. it down. But it's kind of like saying, um, how has wrestling developed? How has wrestling improved your swordsmanship? How has Buckler improved your swordsmanship? And so on. Each one of them really just feels like, okay, that's just that, uh, that segment of the art that if I wasn't training before, I just now get a better understanding of just that segment. Um, because armored combat makes me a better wrestler because you have to wrestle all the time in armor. Uh, and there's things that I, I train the wrestling without the armor. I think that's the better way to do it. You train it without the armor first. But then when you put the armor on, you start developing how do you feel things better because you can't see as well. Uh, when you wrestle in armor, there's fewer fewer opportunities to slip out of things. For example, if my arm is through somebody's arm, if I pull, the armor might be catching a little bit. And in a sleeve, I would just slip out. So I have to feel what are the better opportunities to do an action way more in armor. Um, that's true of the sword. I have to feel the blade a lot more than I do outside of armor. And of course, we're told all the time about what to do when you feel blade contact. Right? Every treatise has something to do with when you feel the blade do this, you respond. That sensitivity to it um, is just so much more drastically important in armor because, again, you don't see quite as well. Uh, there's also just the fact that you're wearing more things and that changes your sensitivity. All right? It dulls your sensitivity in a lot of ways. You have to really get a better feel for what is actually going on around you. Um, so you have to change your awareness a little. And that always just tracks back to unarmored combat of any kind. Uh, when you're fighting unarmored, you do a lot less of grabbing the blade, or at least initially. And a lot of people in armor kind of just focus on armor and don't do unarmored stuff as much. And they don't do those types of techniques. Well, the thing is, you should. Um, you should absolutely use almost every single unarmored technique in armor. And that's why I say, uh, at least in the earlier days of HEMA, back back before anyone called it Hema, uh, the Fiore people, I think, understood that better because Fiore is just written where that's a lot more obvious. And the people who did not do Fiore, it was, um, it very much felt like, oh, these are just two completely separate things. I'm going to focus on the unarmored parts 
Uh, you know, it'd be cool to do armor, but whatever, I'm not going to focus on it. And I tell people like, you absolutely should be doing both elements, whether you have any armor or not, you absolutely should be doing all of it. I also say that about horses with the complete understanding that most people don't have horses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, we, we came up with a pet theory that, um, that Gordia de Alicorno in the Polynesia system actually comes because it's like the, the horn of a, or the sword becomes the horn of the unicorn. Right. <laughs> um, coming over top and it's that overhand thrust that you would do over top or, or, or behind like the high, the side of your horse's head. That's well, if you kind look, of a necessity. If you look at a lot of um, images of medieval unicorns, a lot of them, the horn actually points kind of downwards. It's like parallel. Down, to the yeah. Snap. That makes even <laughs> yeah. more sense. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> so, what that's um, going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Do you see, cause I know you, one of the great things, um, like you're, you're the source of wisdom here because I know <laughs> you've been doing this for a long time, but you've also studied in a lot of different directions, right? You've, you've studied a lot of material from like the early stuff all the way up to, you know, some of the Bolognese sources. Um, your videos on the Bolognese stuff is great. You know, your Red Sword and Rotella, you. your Two Swords and um, your Sword and Small Buckler stuff from Manchiolino. And, um, but you've also done some rapier stuff. So you kind of have this broad perspective of from a time where obviously armor was the emphasis to a time where there's a transition, which I guess would represented with the 16th century stuff and the Bolognese stuff to a time of even further transition, which would be into the rapier stuff. Do you see the, that emphasis start to disappear or at least become less emphasized in terms of like what the overall objective is? Because when I think about this, sometimes, um, I, the way that I see the Polynesian tradition is I, I see it as your ultimate objective is Mezzaspada, right? Like you are trying to get to Mezzaspada because that's the safest place, right? So it's not unlike um, like what you would think in armor. Of course, in armor, you're going to get to Mezzaspada much faster. So you're going to get to that half-sword situation faster. Um, or I guess what in, in the KDF tradition, what you would call um, like the creek, right? You would try to get to that mm -hmm. place faster, right? Um, so you could get to grappling. Um, and I think that like in my, in my mind, that's the objective of the Bolognese tradition. Um, as even if it's not, I mean, I, I think it is explicitly stated, but it's still something I think people would argue. Uh, but I bring that up because with the rapier sources, it seems like even though we do see some grapples, we do see some presses on the arm or, or some wraps and things like that. Um, we don't necessarily see it quite as much. And a lot of times it's much more from that peripheral where you don't really go past the forearm. You don't see people picking each other people up and like putting them in a fireman's carry and then like slamming mm -hmm. them on the ground, you know? Um, so do you think that it, it, there's kind of like a, a dissipation of that over time as the weapons become longer, perhaps it becomes this game of, even though the rapier is very much a narrow weapon in terms of the way we think of that structurally, right? Um, like tactically at least, um, whether we've got like wide and narrow in the Bolognese system and we would see the rapier as being a narrow system, but not necessarily getting to what we would see as narrow objectives with the earlier Bolognese stuff. Yeah, I, it definitely, things like grappling drastically taper down by the era of the, the rapier. Like it's, it's definitely in there. Um, Alfieri even mentions wrestling is one of the fundamental things you should train to get better at swordsmanship along with you know, like flag dancing and things like that. Um, <laughs> and, and the, and the two handed sword, right. He, he explicitly says, these are things that'll make you a better fencer. Um, but 
the actual application of wrestling at the sword is not just less present in the treatises. I actually think it has a lot to do with the culture of, uh, of what is acceptable in a fight. <laughs> so I don't know the source of this. This is something that Tom Leone had uh, told me a long time ago, but he had read some source that um, was Italian uh, and it talked about um, how in the duel, and it, I feel like it was later 16th century, in the duel, um, choosing to wear armor was kind of considered sissy. Right? Uh, if you were going to get into a duel and you know the you have the you challenge someone and that person says, Well, then I have the right to choose the weapons, we're gonna fight in armor. As you get to later time periods, choosing armor is considered like, oh, you're gonna get into this duel that's supposed to be about honor, and you wanna hide behind your your sissy little armor. Um, whereas in the 15th century, your armor was a symbol of your honor. Uh, if you got into a yeah. duel, if you were of the knightly class, you'd better be choosing armor. Um, choosing to fight without your armor would be considered just just disgusting. Right? Why would you yeah. not choose this symbol of who you and your entire rank is? Um, so it's a very different attitude towards this. And culturally, that also changes why you would do some techniques. Um, grappling is a major major element of armor because you constantly miss the gaps you go to attack a person if the goal is to to truly subdue the person or to kill them um you're gonna mess up trying to get to those gaps all the time and you're at a distance where if you don't know how to wrestle you're toast your opponent's gonna take you down as you get further and further away from armor uh, these grappling techniques are certainly useful. If, we're, if we were looking at it from a pure functional point of view, I would say grappling's incredibly useful. But as the culture changes, you start looking more at um, the focus is the sword. And uh, I don't think it's the length of the rapier at all, because when we get to small sword, there's even less grappling. And, and sometimes there are explicit things about, like, you don't, you don't touch the other person. You kill them, right? Or you, you at least... You make them bleed. You don't touch them. That's what pigs do. So it's it's very much and um, well, like I say, it's very much a cultural change, not so much a functional change. Yeah, that's a that's that's really interesting. Um, yeah, we saw that in the duel of think... Guido and uh, Hugo mm -hmm. that there was it was considered controversial because. Um, Neither of them were, they were not dueling wearing armor except for a gauntlet. Mm -hmm. I thought that was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because we've got Pietro Monti, you know, I mean, not, not flipped, uh, seven years before that duel, basically saying that, you know, someone of, of status should never armor outside of, or duel outside of their armor and, yeah. you know, giving, writing a lot about why he thought, like, basically backing up what, what Bill's talking about here. Um, yeah. and, and I, think I guess some of the period, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, oh, I, I was going to say, I think that's interesting. Cause I, I know I've heard that about Fiore in the past. I can't remember who talked about it. It might've been Jess Finley, but, um, she was talking about, uh, Fiore and the fact that he did fight five duels outside of armor mm -hmm. and how that was kind of seen as something that would have been highly unusual yeah. um, for his time. Yeah. And I think a lot of the authors will give their own practical reasons for why to do it. 
And I think a lot of those practical reasons are just because as human beings, we like to justify why we do things. But I actually think it, if we look, if we look back in history, it's not really about function. It really is about what is culturally acceptable. Um, you know, it's, it's just like how I know when I first started getting into this stuff, everyone always talked about like, oh, these techniques are purely about like fighting to the death. And of course, we know now that's not true. Um, so many of these things are about de-escalation or just at least showing up with your sword, clashing some blade and showing that you didn't back down. So you're not a coward. And then, OK, uh, we're done. You know, we don't need to take this any further. Yeah, right. And that those types of things exist even in modern times with a lot of a lot of studies of gang culture and fights. Um, but from decade to decade that changes on what is considered acceptable, what is essentially um, you proving your honor and that's good enough. And what is something where you have to escalate because it's considered, well, you know, why wouldn't you escalate? So that things change throughout time. Yeah. I've, you know, I've been reading a lot about like uh, societal um, pressure on, on weapons laws, um, especially mm -hmm. in the, in the city of Bologna, um, there's a book called Violence and Justice in Bologna, um, and it covers up to the um, 18th century. And in this, mm. in the 17th, the dawn of the 17th century, there was actually like this huge violent outbreak of, of dueling that went on. And it was a big deal. There's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of litigation that happened around um, dueling law, culture, um, weapons laws specifically, because so many people kept dying. Um, and, and it was like, it was talented young people that were dying. And that was, that was the problem. They were like, we have, we have a, a young person crisis. <laughs> they keep killing each other <laughs> in these duels for honor. Um, and we need to do something about it. Um, and it's really crazy. Cause like at the time, um, like there's this one statistic that I was, I was looking at and it has this graph and it's just, it's, um, it's just super fascinating information because, um, it, it talks about like the number of homicides that were committed. Uh, in the city of Bologna and how many of them were done with bladed weapons um, versus like homicides, which were considered like not for honor, which were like uh, usually done with, with pistols. So like if you wanted to assassinate somebody in the early 17th century, like 1600s, 1610, 1615, you'd usually try to shoot them um, with a pistol uh, because that was a thing at the time. And it was kind of like the new, the new technology. So you just run around and try to shoot people with a pistol, but yeah, no, the, the, the bladed deaths um, was something that was just like super fascinating. Most of it was related to duels and, and these honor. honor What's situations. the name of the book? Uh, what, violence what and justice. Yeah, it's uh, violence and justice in Bologna, and I think it's like twelve fifteen to seventeen fifty or something like that. I'll, that I'll send by, by I'll send it to you. Um, oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. but I'll, I'll, put, I'll post it in the show notes, and then I'll send you a I'll send you a link to it. Um, it's a pricey book, it. but it's, it's totally worth it. Yeah. It's, it's a really good book. Um, good books are expensive. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what we found. <laughs> yeah. So every, every time we find a, come across something that's like super interesting, we're like, Oh, I found this book. It's $180. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I, I don't balk at that at all. <laughs> I know. It, it, I mean, it's totally worth it though. So, um, yeah. It's, it's great Although, stuff. When I used to do this professionally, I actually got a tax break on, on stuff like that. Ah, I, I miss that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, this actually segues really nicely into the next question. So like, how do you, 
you've, you've also studied a lot in, in the German traditions and kind of studied those. And, and from our perspective right now um, in our timeline, we're starting to see this interaction a lot between German cultures and Italian cultures, uh, especially as it gets into like the, uh, the, around the siege of Padua and stuff like that. So how did class in German cultures influence fencing? So uh, that's a, <laughs> that's a big one. Um, we definitely see in the 16th century a lot of um, the middle class taking up fencing. And it's debatable how much of that was uh, them trying to uh, kind of obtain a little bit of that taste of the knightly class, right? Um, we even see in certain towns, uh, I don't know if you guys have read uh, Telesti's work. Um, I just suddenly drew a blank on the name. Uh, oh my goodness anyway like martial ethic of yes martial ethic yeah yeah yeah, i got that one's fantastic um but there's a lot of talk of how certain towns the sword was a major part of um of male identity because it meant that they were free okay and and Mm -hmm. plus he also points out there's there's lots of drawbacks to that it's it's Sounds all fine and good until everyone's constantly murdering each other. Like I think I think we can relate to that in the United States pretty well. Exactly. <laughs> the downsides of, of a gun as a source of male or a weapon as a source of male identity. Um, but either way, there's a lot of these fechula going on, these fencing tournaments where it is emulating the knightly class by people who are not of the knightly class. Um, and as we see more and more of that, it gets tied more into self-identity. Uh, you know, you go and you want to make sure that you are protecting your town by uh, by training and by going into uh, these these tournaments where you're the way you win a lot of these tournaments is by getting um, your opponent to bleed on their head, mm-hmm. and likewise, you get a bloody head wound. That's a badge of honor, right? right. So by doing these things that show, hey, I'm a tough guy, it helps tie into this sense of um, I'm doing this for, for, for my town. I'm doing this for my community. Um, although we have plenty of examples of people also slapping off me like, Oh, I've guard duty again. Like, uh, let me just go find a place to, to go sleep. But we definitely see this kind of um, tie in, especially as we see um, town militias, which not all towns operated that way, but it became a lot more of part of the community uh, as we get into the age of of firearms becoming more and more uh, common, we see like shooting clubs and things like that, where people are getting together to uh, to to have tournaments of shooting. And um, again, in Telesity, she talked a lot about uh, some of the innovations that that um, that kind of uh, propelled. But the same at the same time, it also kind of stifled some innovations because of the tournaments. They're like, no, you can't use this particular type of a firearm. So people stopped exploring certain things that probably would have led somewhere. And, um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's interesting to look at how the, again, culture is what affects everything, right? If it's part of the culture to start developing certain things or not develop it, then that affects how that development actually evolves. And I I know I'm going on to a side tangent there. (laughs) Coming back to the original question. Is that uh, when we look at um, how the how class structure is, 
we actually start seeing a lot more of the fighting go towards um, go towards the lower classes rather than um, the knightly class. And in fact, I've actually uh, read some work that uh, Christian Tobler had been um, talking a lot about where Maximilian, Emperor Maximilian I, he started really uh, doing a lot more things to, um, to popularize essentially the Lansnech because he, he relied so much on them mm-hmm. and they were not of the noble class, right? Right. So he did a lot to kind of bring their honor up. And uh, if you look in, in his books, in Maximilian stuff, you see them fighting with, for example, flails. Why would why would the emperor be fighting with a flail, right? At this this grain thrasher that farmers would use. Why on earth is that part of the knightly class? And people have looked at Paul Sector Meyer and said, oh, maybe this was some, you know, specific peasant type of a fighting. Maybe. Uh, we don't know. But it's fascinating to see the emperor in his full armor practicing with this and, and, and doing a tournament with this type of weapon. And Christian brought up maybe this is his way of kind of bringing up the the lasnet without explicitly saying it well of making their lower class weapons and methods become more knightly yeah it, it's interesting i actually i came across something when i was researching um charles v and uh his time spent in ghent because i was really trying to hone in on a lot of this information that i've been finding about uh, Manciolino's patron and um, both of Vigiani's muses, uh, Rodamante and uh, Conti, both kind of being in Charles's early court, um, which would be up to about the 1520s. Um, and the, one of the things that I actually found um, was that uh, Charles was a big fan of the crossbow uh, because he was, he was big on hunting. Uh, when he was a, a young kid, they actually said that, you know, they were really good, glad that he really liked sword fighting and hunting because they were concerned um, based on his like his like physical features, whether or not like he was gonna be like manly enough, uh, mm-hmm. because I guess he had like this really soft disposition in that he was just kind, <laughs> and, and <laughs> that was disturbing to them, um, and and so uh, they, uh, but yeah, so but he ended up really gravitating towards fencing and hunting and shooting crossbows, but he actually participated in like crossbow like tournaments with some of the the local guilds. Um, and I, I thought that was like super cool and, and super fascinating that he would kind of like jump in and that kind of sounds like Max kind of like assimilating and maybe, maybe, I mean, obviously, you know, Maximilian put a lot to paper to kind of like mold Charles in his image, um, yeah. when he knew that he was going to be his successor. Um, and so there was, um, you know, maybe, the, maybe there's a little bit of that influence there, but. Um, that's, that is really interesting. So what were some of the weapons that were like, that we would see? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, we've got like the Messer and the Longsword, uh, we think of as two things, um, that are really kind of like very much like the KDF system versus like something where, when we were thinking about like the Polynesia system, where do we think, um, of maybe like the side sword? So, you know, uh, you know, I guess in the, in the Lichtenauer poem, it's, uh, you know, sword, spear, Messer. So wh- how does that, um, how do you see that and how would you kind of compare that to a weapon like the side sword for the fo- Bolognese folks? So um, here's, here's the hard part about that is uh, when we talk about weapons that like Lichtenauer wrote about, 
we have to also frame it in time period, right? So the Bolognese sure. system we know was at least from the early 15th century. So we unfortunately don't have any of the treatises from that time. I suspect we'd see way more similarities than differences if we had treatises existing from the early 15th century for Bolognese, uh, if we had stuff from Dardy. And um, Fiore, while it's probably a different system of fighting, probably would be a, uh, a good analog, right? Because we see the same weapons as we do in the German stuff, with, with the one exception being the Messer, but the truth is Messer is no different than any other single-handed arming sword. Um, in fact, it's funny because there, there's all these HEMA tournaments for arming sword. Arming sword's the one weapon we don't have a treatise for. Right? <laughs> <laughs> even, even Fiore's sword in one hand is him just using the long sword in one hand, right? right. But functionally, you know, it's 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 tomato tomato, right? Um, Messer in the German uh, treatises is constantly interchanged with uh, with what we would call an arming sword. Uh, in Tallhofer, he has it swap swap in and out between plates, um, and you know it's functionally the exact same thing. So if we compare it to what we would call a side sword, then we're talking about a complex hilted arming sword. And whenever we look at a complex hilted sword versus a non-complex hilted sword, we start seeing more of the the hand being further forward, and that being a standard, right? Um, if we look at if we look at um, any any of the stuff from the early 15th century, having the hand forward is done, but it's not it's not something you're constantly normally doing. You don't constantly hold your point out with the long point there, and uh, you, you go through it all the time. You sometimes will do actions from there, but most of the stances tend to have the hands far back. And if we look at the treatises we have for Bolognese, we tend to have the hand further forward. And I think that I, I mean, wild, wild speculation because we can't prove it. But I think that has to do with the uh, the hand protection. Because if we look at later saber, having the hand forward is the norm, right? You don't bring the hand right. back. And what's the difference between a saber and a dusak versus a dusak and a messer? Well, the hand protection is really it, right? You can make other distinctions, but for the most part, it's whether or not the hand is completely covered. And so as you get towards more complex hilts, you tend to see the hands stay further out more often. And then you see a lot more blade work from, uh, from engagements rather than the engagement being because the two weapons have clashed. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I, I find too, um, and maybe you can speak to this, you know, like, uh, there's kind of this, uh, prevailing idea that, when you see Fiore talk about his guards, uh, he talks about stabile and instabile, right? So like an extended guard is generally instabile where a guard that's brought closer to the body and can kind of engage with the larger muscle groups is stabile. So it's like you have your stable guards and your instable guards based on like the length they are from your body, right? So, um, you know, for people doing, um, I guess like, uh, KDF stuff, imagine like long point would be in stabile versus like a fluke would be stabile, right? Like, cause one is yeah. forward and like fully at extension and therefore mm -hmm. like you just don't have as much control, right? Um, do you think that in, in particular too, that we see, 
um, some of the guards uh, like closer to the body because they do provide that structure necessarily uh, as well? Maybe. Um, here's the thing is like, uh, if we look at, it's, at Saber, for example, or, or, or later Cutlasses um, or Basket Hilt Treatises, we don't see the hand close to the body almost ever. Yeah. And the weapon weight isn't really any different. So it might... It could have something to do with uh, the, the fact that muscle-wise that is more stable. But like when I was a kid doing foil, I got yelled at all the time. Every time I started bending my elbow and bringing my foil too close because my arm was tired. Um, yeah. right. It's, it's one of those things where it seems to be a system would, would say it needs to be forward and another system would say it needs to be back and they might justify it based off of various reasons, including like hand protection. Yeah. Yeah. Including just, um, like you said, just it feeling more stable. I, I don't see enough proof to say that is the reason. Um, but it could but be I mean, a factor. Yeah, it could be a factor. I I also couldn't yeah. disprove that at all. <laughs> I, I I think it's interesting because like you know, kind of again, kind of speaking of this from like a broad scope and kind of like the full scope, like we were talking about before, um, in 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 the lost tapes, uh, one of the things that we had talked about was Palladini, um, and mm -hmm. you had looked at Palladini as well, and we were talking about Palladini, and you were talking about his system being predicated on a um, a an obligation like, uh, what was it? Um, a provocation by obligation, right? And so where you're kind of, you're deliberately f going to find your opponent's sword in a way where they, they're obligated to do a sfalsata or cavazione, and then you're counterattacking into their cavazione that you've just created. Like you, you basically give them a really strong overbind and you're forceful in the fact that you're, you're giving them one specific choice, right? And, um, obviously the, we the see Kavatsune of, of tempo versus a Kavatsune of obedience. Yes. That's what we were talking about. Yeah. So could you explain that a little bit and kind of like get into that? Cause I, I think that's interesting. Cause I think in, in some ways too, like some of these postures, like that becomes a posture that I think would be something or a tactical consideration that you'll see in the rapier treatises, but, um, you might not see necessarily in the Bolognese treatises, right? Because if we are thinking about them as, as weapons with a little bit less of a complex hilt, then, um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think there are two uh, historical ways to kind of look at this, right? Um, at least in among the human community is, is we've seen this from like a top-down perspective and a bottom-up perspective where people have either come into the Bolognese tradition from like Fiore and they've kind of like taken that and they've studied. And so they might have more of that grappling perspective where I think especially among the SEA community, it's been a top-down where they learn rapier first and then bring that down into the side sword. And then it becomes the, the cut and thrust that we see in like SEA and stuff like that. So with that, that variation of hand perspective, like one of the things that the Anonimo talks about is how you should never let your sword be found unless it's greatly to your advantage, right? Like, you know, that it's going to be a good thing for you for, to, for somebody to find your sword. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm bringing this up because I see this as with that lack of hand protection, like what you we were just talking about, if the guards are a little bit more attracted, they're closer to the body, similar to what we would see with something like a messer or something like that, where cutting is, is it, it makes cutting almost a necessity because you want to be able to cut to a bind. You want to get somebody to 
respond to uh, your initial provocation. And then you can work from there to try to create your scenarios and stuff like that, right? Uh, but you want to create that obligation um, through usually delivering an attack, right? So yeah, I don't know if you could speak to that and just kind of like talk about that because I think it does kind of like highlight the difference between rapier and what we would see from like the earlier sources. Yeah. Um, so like Fabris explicitly says that uh, finding the opponent's sword is the first step to victory. And um, the reason he says that is because you want to gain control of the situation so that your opponent is forced to make a tempo uh, that you can exploit, right? And that, that's the idea of the cavazione di tempo, or the cavazione of timing, and the cavazione of obedience. So if I go to close off the line of attack, and my opponent is now in a position where they have to move their sword before they can hit me, then that means they are creating a tempo under my conditions, right? They, they are now in obedience to me. It doesn't mean that I will automatically win, of course, but it does mean that now they are doing a move because I said they had to. Uh, if they want to do anything to win, they now have to make an action. Um, or at least they have to do it when I can be prepared for it. And the cavazione of timing is a more um, sophisticated cavazione because that would be if you were trying to close off the line um, and I, as you step into measure to try to do it, my cavazione happens in tempo, and it happens in the timing of you starting to do this, so that I, I've done it in a way that you now are, you're in a, a situation where it's much harder for you to make your response, because I've done it in tempo. Um, and that is something we see a lot of in Italian rapier treatises, not just in Fabers, but it just really all of those as well as the German treatises that um, ended up really falling in love with Fabris. So that ends up being something that um, like, as we were saying, the blades are already extended most of the time. Mm -hmm. All right. It's not very normal for you to leave your, your weapon so retracted that it can't be found. Um, occasionally we have lower positions, but things where the blade is completely out of the way is, is not the norm. Fabris definitely has them. Uh, he has ones where the sword's pointing straight up so that it's very difficult for the opponent to find it. <clears throat> but we don't see things where um, the, the rapier is behind the person as a, a normal stance. And with the earlier stuff, we see those, those retracted positions all the time where um, you are cutting to get the person to bind so that you can then work from there and feel what they're doing and then respond. Yeah. So, Sorry, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I think that's really interesting because I, I think we got a, a little bit of pushback on an episode that we just put out about the beginner fundamentals um, in the Bolognese mm -hmm. system, and especially about thrusts um, and the way that we describe the thrusts um, and the in the stoccata in general coming kind of coming forward and then terminating in a in a supernated or pronated type position. Mm -hmm. um, and, and somebody was coming back at me with a bunch of stuff from like Capapero and Fabris and, and talking about how they define the stoccata. And, um, and I thought it was really interesting because I, I think like I, I do like I, I wonder sometimes like I, I think that there is some like some good information that we can get that we can kind of take from that top down perspective, like bring from rapier down into to like the side sword traditions 
but at sometimes they also in a way start to feel a little foreign, you know, like I think about like Dalagokie, for example, like I think it, it might be more informative for a source like Dalagokie, but I think when you start to get into like, um, uh, like Marazzo and, and the Anonimo and then, uh, Manchielino, it, it's, it feels, it feels like you're, you're almost kind of like forcing something down into it. I don't know if you've had a similar perspective in your, in your study or, or how yeah, you feel about that. In my earlier days, I definitely tried to make, um, Italian rapier and Bolognese the same thing essentially just uh, you know a slightly different variant of the same thing and I tried too hard to make um, certain concepts fit and in some of the cases the definitions of things have changed so you just brought up staccata the definition of staccata changed over time um, Yeah, I, I might be wrong I think it's Marcelli who defines it as uh, a staccata is a thrust with the palm down and an imbricata is a thrust with the palm up. I might, I might be misquoting that. <laughs> but essentially... It's Probably like the complete, opposite, but you got the basic idea across. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a completely different definition of it. So um, we can't force that onto an early definition. And we yeah. see that... I mean, all martial arts evolve over time. And all martial arts branch off to have their own different variants. And we can see that in one lifetime. Um, there are Taekwondo gyms now that have a, t- uh, you know, a teacher who teaches something very differently than uh, you know, from the 1980s. And uh, that has to be true when we're looking at hundreds of years uh, of change. And yeah. it doesn't even mean the, ar- the art gets better. It just means it's a different. And the way people understand certain things is different. And the culture um, changes, and so yeah. the art is going to reflect the culture of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's um, I and I definitely like. I think we see that like in the treatises themselves, right? Like, I mean, we have Altoni, Vigiani, and uh, uh, Agrippa all all publishing in fifteen fifty or writing in fifteen fifty. Um, two of them published in fifteen fifty. One is obviously Vigiani is posthumously in fifteen seventy five, but. Um, all of them in, in 1550 are basically trying to come up with something like to change the terminology, you know, I mean, they're, they're saying, Hey, we need, we need to reform this. You know, everybody, like, it's like the printing press have been around long enough. They're like, all right, we're sick of reading the same thing over and over again. So let's, let's come up with our new thing. Let's, let's give it a new name. You know, let's, uh, let's try to, or maybe, maybe there was some confusion that they felt they needed to clarify, but you kind of see these like reformists, um, in 1550 start to put out these texts. And it's like, I mean, they were already trying to change the terminology that by that point and, you know, you have you have somebody like Dalagoki in 1572 basically saying, hey, this isn't the same, right? I mean, the, the right. fencing of today is more narrow. Um, and, you know, if you look at contemporary treatises, it, like Dalagoki looks more like his contemporaries using Bolognese terminology, mm-hmm. or at least what we would consider Bolognese terminology, um, and then, then he would to somebody like Marazzo and Manchilino. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that brings up the point that um, even we as modern people tend to classify things in ways that make sense to us. But mm-hmm. what is the Bolognese tradition? Um, because if you go to Florence, you start seeing arts that look very, very similar from the same time period. But it's not Bolognese by definition because it's from Florence. Right? And right. Yeah. You know what? What is the difference? It's the classifications that we have made. So, 
Right. Yeah. I mean, there is to to that point. There is a shared terminology. I think that's the only thing that we can kind of like loop them together yeah. through. Right. Like, I mean, we know that Dochiellini and Altoni are basically from the same thing because they share the same terminology. Um, like mm. you can you can take information from uh, you know Dochiellini and you can go back to Altoni and it makes sense. Like when you have your yeah. Meza Alta or whatever, um, you're, you know what guard you're in. Just like if you're reading between the Bolognese treatises, especially the the early three, um, mm. when they say a specific guard name, you you know where you're at. Like you can most of the time. But what, what about Guardi di Testa, right? Most of the time. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, well, and that's the thing. Like, so this is another thing too. Like, Guardi di Testa is a great example of that, right? Like, Guardi di Testa to me um, is a nomenclature change with with Dalagoke. And the reason why I think Dalagoke is the only treatise in the Polynesian tradition that says that, uh, Gordia de Testa is above the head, um, is because with the point down, uh, is because you have a more complex guard by 1572. Like, uh, I was looking through, uh, AVB Norman the other day and looking at the evolution of the side sword. And I mean, by 1550, you've got what we would classify a lot of times as rapier hilts, like the more complex, ra- uh, hilts on, on most of those swords, I mean, that was common. So, uh, I mean, by 1572, we're talking like we've got complex hilts. And so it makes more sense, just like in Saber, it makes more sense, even though you're using a cutting weapon to keep your hand extended, it mm-hmm. makes more sense to parry high with the point over your head because it provides better protection. But at the same time, you have hand protection. So it makes more sense for you to do that. Whereas if you were doing that with the less complex sword, like a, like a you know an early early side sword, um, if you stick your knuckles up like that, somebody's just going to pop you in the knuckles. Yeah. So, although that, I mean, that's, that parry that's does saying. appear in um, Anonymous Bolognese, but it, that's under the context that they've already found your sword. And so it's like a Saber Parry 1 or Saber Parry 7, like you're just releasing and, and cutting as opposed yeah. to coming at it from a, a, a position of not being previously engaged. Yeah. I mean, that, that parry definitely exists in earlier treatises. It's, it's I would argue, kind of a bread and butter type of parry right. in Messer, but it's not a position you stay in, right? right. I don't start in that You don't position. hang out there at all, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and Manciolino does it, to be fair. Like, with a sword and cape, he says that you, you allow your sword to hang over. And this is, mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons why I think that, um, in particular, uh, this actually kind of, like, shook my foundations when I first saw this. Uh, because I, I did think of Gordi de Testa as transitory, like it, it translates mm-hmm. across. Like I even talked to Tom Leone. I was like, Tom, um, you know, the, the Latin origin of the word testa is head, right? <laughs> I mean, but if you take that back, it's head because it testa was a, a verb that was used to describe a round pot or an adverb, right? So it's it's a, or an adjective, excuse me. <laughs> I'll get grammar right eventually. Um <laughs> So, but it, it's a, a word that's used to describe something, right? So it was a word to describe the roundness of something and it became to the head because a skull is round, right? And so I was thinking, okay, so maybe, you know, there's like this, this Latin connection because obviously at the time they would have still spoke Latin. You had this huge ecclesiastical school in the city of Bologna. Um, you know, Latin would have been something that was a, a common thing for people and, for some of them, ecclesiastical training was like their foundation. So, like, was was this supposed to be round? Like, is this a rounded action? Like, it's, does it describe motion? And um, he said, absolutely not. <laughs> Which, you know, was a bummer. <laughs> but, I mean, it, still, like, 
Um, but then I, I read that in, in Manchiolino and it kind of it shook me even further. And I, I kind of like shed that notion. I was like, you know what? I think, I think it is that posture that, that, um, we see illustrated in Marazzo. And I, I started going back and re, re reinterpreting a lot of things to include a more, much more fixed idea of Corde de Testa, which I actually really enjoy, um, since I've explored it. But Manchiolino talks about allowing the sword to kind of turn over like it's a wheel um, to make a parry and allow that point to go down towards the ground. And in the very next play, he says, parry and Gordy to Testa, right? So why would he describe something that in detail? Mm-hmm. And then in the next day, just say Gordy to Testa? Because that's not what he does as an author. Like he doesn't, Marazzo would do that. Marazzo would totally do that. Yeah. <laughs> but Manchiolino does not do that. Like if Manchiolino has a term for something, he defines it. And that's like, it's, you'll find the definition in there somewhere. If he's describing an action, it's usually something that Manchiolino will, or Marazzo in particular, will end up making up a word for. So, mm-hmm. so speaking uh, of Manchiolino, kinda... um, did any of the Bolognese authors particularly inform your fencing, Bill? Uh, so Manchiolino is my favorite, um, but when I was, when I was first getting into doing what we now call HEMA, um, when I was first getting into these historical arts, I was lucky because I met Tom Leone very early on uh, and Steve Reich. And they, while the two of them are not really very present in the community anymore, um, early on, they were reading things that I didn't end up hearing about for at least another decade um, from anyone else. And a major thing being they were able to read the Italian, but even in uh, Italian circles, I didn't really hear other people reading these sources. So they would use me as a guinea pig quite often for helping them to uh, just learn and mm-hmm. learn how to teach these Bolognese systems. So I was really working through stuff that I didn't know what it was for the very longest time. It wasn't until we started, um, like, you know, Tom went to publish his, uh, his translation of Manchilino a lot of the stuff I didn't realize I'd learned it from Manchilino because I was mm-hmm. learning from Tom and Steve and they would say, you know, we're going to try going through this assault. You know, we want to see what you, uh, uh, what your opinions are about this. We want to go through these actions. And um, they would just tell me, this is from the Bolognese sources. So it's hard for me to pick one thing that actually influenced me. Cause the truth is Tom and Steve influenced me the most because of their studies of the Bolognese treatises. But, um, of all the various different Bolognese sources, and for that matter, 16th century Italian sources, Manchilino tends to be the one that I just, I don't know, somehow gel with the most. There's something about his clarity, despite the fact that he also will go on tangents about, um, if he were, uh, if he were a writer and not a, uh, just a <laughs> yeah, lowly fencing master, he would write about satyrs and, uh, <laughs> and dancing, uh, butterflies in the meadow. But, uh, sadly, here's how to fence. Um, Bill, have you, have you read my, have, have you read my paper on, on nymphs and satyrs? That's a metaphor for <laughs> wide play and narrow play. Oh man. All right. I'm going to send awesome. that to you. That's yeah. Awesome. <laughs> So I think one of the things I, I liked about Manchelino a lot was uh, the the Perusian play, the uh, sacrifice throw where you know yeah. you grab somebody yeah. and you fall on the ground and you throw it over him and you know that he has a cool name for it. Um, now you've talked about your experience with uh, wrestling and stuff like that. Um, do you do any wrestling 
kind of moves when you're doing Messer? And are there any particular ones that you think are your favorites? Oh man, I do a lot of <laughs> of wrestling and, and ring in, um, or at least I did when I was younger, I should say. Like <laughs> I've gotten old and put on some weight now, and I don't do as much fencing as I once did. But when I was seriously doing this, I did a lot of wrestling. Um, that action in uh, the Germans, they call it the nave throw. Um, which I just find funny. <laughs> throw. Um, yeah. It's very tricky. <laughs> um, Why do they call it the nave throw? No one knows. Probably my wild guess is probably because little kids do it all the time. Right. <laughs> okay. Got it. Um, because uh, they would have been like, oh yeah, this is a move that you see little kids doing all the time. But that there's so many names for things that we have no idea where it comes from. And likewise, there's, there are techniques that uh, are not explained in any of this, uh, the treatises, but they're named all the time, including one called the unnamed technique. There's, oh, well, some, rest- cool. there's some wrestling move where it'll be like, <laughs> if he does this, use the unnamed technique. And it moves on. Like, Damn it. What does that mean? <laughs> um, there's also one called counter wrestling, which apparently must have meant something to them because they'll be like, the counter to this move is to do counter wrestling and then it moves on. <laughs> and like, what, the, what kind of explanation is that? So it must have been a that? term that we just uh. nowadays have lost. Um but no as far as wrestling goes, uh yeah, I I don't I don't specifically have a favorite move, uh, but it definitely um I guess I have been uh known to do a lot of hip throws that are, are are described um particularly the short hip but i I wouldn't say i have a specific favorite move because i'm very much for a what what feels right for the moment (laughs) got it so um what things from messer do you think would be useful for bolognese side sword i know you said they're they're pretty similar but are there any things in particular that are in messer that you would want to bring to fencing bolognese style it's a good question and it's um so where the two of them superficially are very different is uh, where we've talked about having the hand forward versus the hand mm-hmm. back. Um, I would say that's this, the most obvious difference. But once blades start meeting, um, if I were to pick something that was a more or a less superficial di- difference, um, the various German actions spend a lot of time with talking about uh, winding and about where your blade is in relationship to your opponent's blade and what kind of dominance that gives you and how do you yield around a blade. I have seen the equivalent to every single winding action in Bolognese, but it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily laid out as explicitly. Mm -hmm. So I would say if if there were something that, uh, that the German styles help with understanding Bolognese, it would be that. Um, but as far as just the overall fencing principles, I find the two of them to be more similar than not once you get past the superficial differences. Okay, great. Um, can you tell us about Lukushner's? Oh, well, so Lukushner's a very well-known uh, Messer source, I believe. Uh, he mm-hmm. is known for having a couple plays on it and a few extra. <laughs> Uh, and is apparently also an aficionado of the game backgammon. Can well, you tell us a little bit about Lukushner's backgammon? That's that's really just one illustration that. Um, so, the German sources have a lot of jokes, essentially, um, mm-hmm. especially with the wrestling. 
there is one, and I, I just drew a blank on, uh, I feel like it's in Lignitzer, but where um, it's just talking about like putting your opponent in a hold and then tells you like, once you have them there, you know, um, the way it's phrased is very cryptic, but what he's essentially saying is uh, you can, once you have them phrased there, you can play dice with your buddies, right? You can uh, <laughs> start just, uh, you just hold them there. <laughs> and you, you see this even in modern grappling arts, um, uh, I did a tiny bit of BJJ, not much, but uh, the I remember the instructor always being like, "All right, once you put them in this position, you know, just lay down, get yourself a drink, right? Uh, you know, call your buddies <laughs> over." When I did Aikido, I remember um, my sensei talking about this one armbar, and uh, you know, he just laid on him, and he's like, "This is a good time to just take a nap because your guys are anywhere." <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what the ba- backgammon move is it's um just a play in the messer where the guy comes in and he tells you um you could even just drop the messer because you're going after the person's arm and you, you put him into an elbow lock and pin him on the ground and uh it's essentially just pointing out how helpless your opponent is so he said you can uh you can even play a board game here if you want and he says a couple other things there and then so for the illustration it shows him playing backgammon because it's just funny to see how helpless the other guy is. So that, that, that's all that move is. So that's the equivalent to when the, the Italian masters say, and then just hit him with a, a cut yeah. or a thrust, Do whatever you, you feel want. like it. Do whatever you <laughs> yeah. want. At this point. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, we've been focusing a lot on 16th century military combat and fencing in northern Italy. In infantry combat, battles started with pikes and halberds, uh, but they tended to degenerate into a fight with swords. Can you tell us a bit about the German or Swiss sidearm, you know, their swords? Sure. And I will tell you, um, the more military aspect, while I, I know a good amount about, uh, mm-hmm. I've had less focus on that than I have on the fencing treatises, which are not right. as explicit about military usage. Right. Um, but yeah, d- definitely as we get into the 16th century, the Messer still is very much common in the German-speaking areas um, and various other forms of just single-edged swords the the katzbalger is is a culturally um specific weapon although it is not really any different than any other double-edged type of a single-hand sword and the dusak became more and more common and the dusak and messer are directly related so the dusak essentially is a complex hilted messer um it's you know it's a cutlass type of weapon and we see in fencing treatises where uh, the, the terminology for Messer starts being used more and more to describe the Dussac. And uh, likewise, you occasionally see uh, treaties where the terms Messer and Dussac start being interchangeable, where it'll, it'll be describing the Dussac, and every once in a while it'll say, parry with your Messer. Um, and it's referring <laughs> to the same thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's telling. <laughs> So would they have used a Kaltzbarger like a Messer then? Almost definitely. Um, I've never seen a fencing treatise that explicitly called out that weapon. Mm-hmm. But functionally, there's there's not enough of a difference. Um, because, as I said earlier, in the 15th century sources, you see the Messer interchangeable with the arming sword. So what is a Kaltzbarger? It's, it's just a, a stylistic version of an arming sword. And I know people like to point out, like, oh, the Kotzbogger is so much shorter and things like that. That's not always true. It's a generic term for um, the visual styling of the sword. Just like a Schiavona has a very uh, a very distinctive basket, 
but you see a lot of different blade types with the Skiavona. So it's the name is describing what something looks like more than the actual function. It's basically just a basket-hilted sort of whatever kind of blade you want to put on. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. Kaltzbogger is more just a generic term for a sword with some visual characteristics that are similar. Because it's that's a right. cultural thing. That's right. And, and you know, you, you can make the argument that some of them, more more of them are shorter than longer. But even right. then, that doesn't change the techniques. It changes your distance. It might change what your application of the techniques are, but it doesn't actually change ultimately how your techniques work. Okay. Cool. Um, so one of the features of uh, 16th century military combat, of course, we're talking about the pikes and uh, you know, the, the pikemen run at each other. And then at a certain point they're all within stabbing distance uh, and they kind of get locked into this thing sort of called push of pike where they're just sort of, you know, trying to snipe each other, but it's a bunch mm-hmm. of pikes facing against each other. Not super effective. So various countries tried different things to break up the push of pike. And, you know, obviously you're looking for trying to cut through the spaces of the pikes. Um, and the Germans, among different techniques, used men with two-handed swords uh, to break up this their push of pike. Um, and they called these double soldiers. Can you tell us anything about them? Yeah, um, I probably can't tell you anything that isn't already common knowledge about these right. soldiers who were, uh, who were paid double for these very dangerous jobs uh, and for doing things like protecting the flag. And uh, the flag was not just, not just symbolically important, but it's also where everyone has to rally, right? When, uh, right. when your commander blows that horn and you know, you need to get back there and the enemy's already captured it. That's, that's bad. <laughs> so, it's a big, big problem. Yeah. yeah uh, so it's like capturing <laughs> your base basically. So capture yeah, the flag exactly. is very literal. <laughs> Got it. Yes. But uh, technique-wise, the one um, unfortunate thing is, uh, despite how um, how popular the uh, the modern idea of big two-handed swords is with German culture, mm-hmm. we don't really have treatises talking about very large two-handed swords. Um, okay. You might might argue Meyer, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's he's doing long sword. And, you know, if you're just looking purely at the pictures, they do look large. But uh, he's also um, teaching very much in a one-on-one sword versus sword scenario, not sword versus pike or anything like right. that. Um, my, my one experience with this type of, of combat was actually at uh, the Western Martial Arts Workshop several years ago, where Christian Cameron, he... Um, he ran some simulations for the purpose of, uh, of education that were fascinating to be part of where he got a bunch of people armored and armed a certain ways. And he wanted to do things where he was studying, um, Greek formations. Mm-hmm. So we had people with round shields with, um, with minor armor, even though a lot of people like me, I was wearing 15th century armor for it, but he just, you know, I was just wearing like the breastplate and a helmet. And he had us wear these really short, the, the Zyphos, he had us doing these um, synthetic sh- swords mm-hmm. and we would uh, have shield and spear. We we're all pressed together. And I don't know exactly what they were looking for, but they were having like a dr- uh, drone film things and they would do actions where uh, they, they would prep us on what we needed to do. And um, it's probably the most dangerous thing I've ever been part of. It was terrifying. Really? Yeah, it was terrifying. And it gave me such a new respect for military fighting now, I, they were so safe 
with this because it felt like almost every 10 seconds a halt was called uh, because something was something was dangerous. And I didn't fully realize this till I was actually deep in the press. So when you have a couple hundred people all pressed together, I was wearing a cuirass that was protecting my torso, and I would sometimes have trouble breathing because all of us would be pressed together because there's thousands of pounds of people pressed Oof. into you. Some okay. are pressing in front of you with their shields, and some are pressing behind you, and you're getting squished. And uh, I had some horrifying revelations of this because I would realize um, if I were in that situation, I would probably turn to the guy next to me and say something to him and realize he's already dead because he's pressed so much against me that he wouldn't have fallen. And I started having like just very gruesome thoughts about this. Wow, um, that's cool. And it's really interesting. It, really, yeah, it was it was an experience unlike any I've ever gone through. They were press um, testing also like shield presses. So they uh, had a guy in the front with um he was holding a big thing for for testing how much weight we put in, and he'd have us form those diamond wedges and we'd all be pushing, and uh, they'd call a halt after a certain point to see how much how much pressure were we putting into that front guy, uh, and. Again, it was the sort of thing where like my arm was pressing into my shield to a point where I would be like, "Uh oh, am I going to break my arm? Um, and they would always call a halt way before anything bad would happen. And they were so safety conscious for it. And I can't tell you how thankful they were so safe, safety conscious because there, there were moments where I overall didn't think anything bad was going to happen because of that. But I could so see something stupid happening and then a bunch of us would get hurt. And I realized, like, how often did people get trampled by their own men? How often did uh, did you get these pike formations? We read about these Swiss pike formations moving in a line. How often did the right. press come in and something stupid happens and you kill your own guy? Uh, you accidentally um, just, you know, when you form your rank and file, how often does someone retract their spear and clobber the other person behind him on accident because he just didn't realize and didn't have any room to maneuver or for that matter you parry and you are so close to everybody that you can't parry because your arm gets stuck on your your buddy and you actually hit them hard and they get killed because of it or you die because you couldn't maneuver to do the parry so um, that was so my you first need a helmet just to not get bonked by your own guys like your own That's guys are going to knock you out if you don't have something on top of your dome that is exactly how I felt. Um, and granted, we were in a in, in scenarios where we weren't all trained for these types of group tactics, but they yes. were they still were enlightening. Um, because I I feel like even if we had been really heavily trained in these military tactics, we still would have had a lot of casualties that are friendly fire. <laughs> you know, and it okay. was. It was definitely fascinating for me. It was really eye-opening for me. That's really cool. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to get Christian on to get yeah. his take on this. That'll be an interesting yeah for interesting sure episode. Do you want to? You know, I think that's yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, so I I, I think it's really interesting because like in you know with uh, Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba, uh, the great captain, uh, the Spanish get, uh, commander down in, in Naples. Um, during the Italian wars, like that was his big innovation was kind of um, bringing in rotoleros and sword and buckler men to mm -hmm. be that, that, that opportunity to break up the, the push of Pike. So that's how he right. countered 
um, the use of the Swiss pikemen um, from the French. And of course, like the, the, the Swiss would do the same thing a lot of times using halberds. Um, we see them, uh, that was kind of like their, their weapon of choice is to, to use the halberd as their kind of their breakup weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, with, uh, uh, I think the, uh, the lens connected, it seems like it might've been the two handed sword was, was the primary. I remember reading one time, and I think this was from the Spadone project that there was a, uh, there's actually a Swiss um, letter that was uh, written about uh, his experience fighting against the Landsknecht. And uh, he was writing back to his wife and he was making fun of the Germans or something like that. I can't remember who he was writing to, but he's making fun of the Germans because he said uh, the Germans love to carry two-handed swords into battle and they couldn't carry them in a sheath because there wasn't room to unsheath the sword, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they, would, they would carry them unsheathed, but... They were so used to the convention of carrying their swords on their belts that they would keep it tucked like up underneath their armpit or like in on their side, right? Hmm. Um, and so they would kind of carry it that way instead of carrying it up on their shoulder. Um, and the Swiss used to like deliberately like just jam the the Lance Connect units because they knew that the guy they would end up stabbing the guy behind them with their two handed huh. sword. <laughs> and so like this was a, this is a common thing so they would just kind of like they would punk them and they would just kind of like run out to them and just like jam them um in formation and just kind of like even if it was just kind of like a feint they weren't like deliberately engaging because they knew they would take out like at least 10 or 15 of them um from a friendly fire i have so, never heard of it <laughs> yeah yeah it was super interesting well, that's kind uh, of because, one of the things we're trying to get out there is all these little details of what was actually happening yeah you know I'm, yeah, because I think actually, there's. A... Um, I'm signed up to go to a uh, an event in Germany in uh, in September called the uh, Feldlager that uh, Arne Coates is uh, putting on, along with some other people like Jake Norwood, and um, essentially it's I'm, I'm so excited about it. But it's we're we're going to be at Castle Brandenburg. We're going to be camping out there and Ooh, uh, running good. essentially military simulations. Um, Great. Jake has a big hand in that because he was he was army. And he also has done so much in the, the gaming world on game design. And uh, he wants to set up essentially scenarios where we use these um, these military simulations, but apply what we know from the sources of, of stuff from the 15th century. Hmm. And uh, I'm so excited. That's amazing. That. Yeah. We <laughs> we'll have to have you back on. Show on. Too. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was going to say, we're going to, once, once you've done that, we're going to have to have you back on because yeah. you're going to have to give us a full report on how that trip was because that sounds yeah. amazing. And I mean, that's because it's right up our alley, right? That's, that's kind of like the goal of where we're at right now with the podcast mm-hmm. is we realized that, and, and the reason why we, we were kind of rebranding it from Lay Arts mm-hmm. of Del to The Art of Arms is because mm-hmm. there's so much that we can learn um, that I think we, I don't know. I mean, people have been doing it for a long time, but like our goal now is to say, Hey, let's look at the historical chronicle. Let's look at the treatises like kind of side by side. Yeah. And let's, let's see if we can start to like pair some of these together. Some of like start to understand some of these things, you know? Um, I, there's so many fascinating things that we can do with that. You know, like yeah. one of the things that you've been doing a lot lately is, um, uh, I, I mean, I see your scabbards all the time and you've really gotten into like historical woodworking. Like, I mean, how has that changed to your perspective on, on all your studies and, and things like that? It's, it's really just a pandemic hobby that just went way out of control. Just <laughs> yeah, but they're beautiful. I mean, <laughs> everybody saw them. They were like, I need one of those. <laughs> um, that 
aspect of it um, has definitely helped me understand a lot more about broader culture. I mean, woodworking was not something that was on my radar at all until the pandemic. And uh, I'd always thought like, oh, that'd be fun to get into it. I'm scared to death of power tools, like absolutely terrified of power tools. So um, I started watching YouTube videos on how do you how do you start doing these things without them? And that's when I started seeing people um, using all hand tools. And uh, turned out my dad had a few hand tools that uh, had belonged to his grandfather. So that got me started. And I just started doing these things. And of course, being interested in, in medieval and Renaissance Europe, I started looking in more to those tools and finding, honestly, a lot of the techniques and tools have not changed for hundreds of years, if not longer. Um, the only thing that's changed a little bit is uh, some of those tools in the, the 20th century started being mass produced, but the actual basic function of it wasn't any different until uh, the age of power tools. So I've started delving a lot more into how did they actually do this in um, the Renaissance and in the Middle Ages. And it's, again, it hasn't actually changed that much. But it is fascinating to, uh, to get a better sense of how, how production methods have changed, right? I can go to the store and buy, um, buy wood. I can just go down to the local Home Depot or any place like that and go, all right, I just need this length of lumber. It's already been kiln dried. It's ready for me. I bring it home and I start working. I don't have to mill it from a tree and then let it air dry for a year and go through all the steps to make sure that it doesn't warp too badly. And if it warps, what do I do about it? And all of those sorts of things. So that's something that has given me a better perspective on just like the time it takes to do things. For example, a shield. Like, how much time does it take to make a shield? Yeah. Granted, woodworkers constantly were setting aside their, their lumber so that they always had stuff on hand, but things happen, floods happen and things like that. And suddenly it's like, I can't just run down to the store and buy some more wood. So it's given me a better perspective on just how, honestly, the slowness of everything from a different yeah. era. Do you know, uh, do you know Kyle Edwards? The name's familiar. I don't, I don't know if I know him or not. He, he lives down in the North Carolina mountains. Um, mm. Really, really good, amazing cutter. Um, I know that he's, uh, you should, you should definitely get together with Kyle. He's, he's been mm. doing a lot of stuff. I mean, like he, he will, he's got a huge plot of land out, out in the North Carolina mountains and he'll go and hmm. uh, he cuts and dries his own lumber. Um awesome. I think, yeah, I think I need to coordinate between you and Kyle because they could take, they could take your experiment and your ideas and like take them into a completely new realm. Cause you could take a tree from start to finish. Um, and he can help you do that. Um, be really cool. Yeah. It is something that I have a lot of wilderness around me that I've been like, Hmm, you know, what would my wife say if I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to put this outside. Uh, you know, I'm going to make sure that it's just out of the way for the most part. Yeah, it's going to have a tree. To as long as you're okay with all this wood being there for a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't wait for that. <laughs> that's well, I mean, that's just, that's part of, you know, being in any relationship, right? I mean, that's so I, I, I do I'm have one question. I'm telling her, you knew what you were getting into when you married me. Yes. <laughs> she had no idea. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, that you, it's like, 
yeah, there's like there's a depth of, of of knowledge that just starts to come up to the surface, and you're just like you feel more comfortable. You're just like, yeah, I am that much of a nerd. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a there's an admonition I want to read to you uh, from Paladini because now that you've you've kind of gotten into the creation of of scabbards, this is perfect. You're the, the perfect person. I to think I know this. what you're talking so, about. <laughs> yeah. All right, so chapter two of his admonitions, um, he talks about, which is, I think, book five of his, his treatise, he talks about uh, admonition to sitting at a table with soldiers or others closely together, as is customary. If you come into conflict with some of their number and are obliged to draw your sword, being provoked by an affront or forced to defend yourself, since you will be constrained, as I have said, you will not be able to draw your sword except by employing the method that I suggest here as safe. You should put your fingers uh, into the guard of your hilt from the outside of your hilt, then raise your arm high until it is drawn, being able to attack uh, with a squalumbrano. Um, you cannot achieve this in any other manner, since you cannot straighten your arm and put your hand to your sword and draw it from its sheath, as you would typically... Um, as you would typically... Why is that the one? I think that's where he stabs through the scabbard. Yeah, he breaks the scabbard, right? So, yeah. did I skip that part? Oh man, I, I thought he he describes it. Maybe it's the one before that. Draw it from the sheet. I'm pretty sure it's that one. Yeah. So either way, yeah, slamming the slamming the sheet down on the ground to to basically break yeah. it so that way you can free your sword. I how, I how... suspect, and I don't know this, but I suspect he's actually talking about um a leather sheath. A leather scabbard, um, because doing it with wood would be very difficult. The way he describes that, yeah. not impossible, but it, it would be difficult, um, especially as suddenly as he's describing, where like you're in this crowd of uh, all of you together sitting down, and this fight breaks out, and you need to defend yourself. Um, and if the scabbard's leather, it makes sense of uh, just drawing it out enough and stabbing through um, through the the leather, and then that way you have the the blade exposed. So the point, Interesting. yeah. Oh. He also has the one in there about um, my favorite was uh, every time you leave the house, always check your sword to make sure yes. that it's really in your scabbard, right? Because he says he says something about he knew a guy who um, his servant had been paid to cut the sword in half and then put it back in his scabbard so that he went out and uh, you know one of his enemies challenged him to fight and he, he draws the sword and the most of the sword is not actually there and he dies. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. I love that. I love those yeah. details. You'd never think about that. But that's totally a thing. Cool. Yeah. Paladini's he's great with his admonitions. Cause I think it, it probably gives us some of the best, just kind of like general carry recommendations, you know, like, I mean, yeah. a lot of times in the, in the gun community, they talk about like how like the safest thing to do is to know how to safely handle a weapon. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so like that's kind of like what Paladini is giving us there, you know, mm -hmm. like I, in the cutting community, right? Like how many times have you been to a sword tournament or a sword event, right? And people are like standing around and they got like the tip of their sword like on their foot, you know, their fatter, yeah. right? Right. The rolled tip I'm of one their. Of those guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And then you, and then you put a sharp sword in their hand and they're like stabbing themselves in the foot. And they're just like, <laughs> ow. <laughs> I've not seen that. <laughs> I've heard I've heard stories of it happening. So, uh, but you know, I, it's kind of like it's one of those things, right? Like we we kind of develop these kind of bad habits because we're holding simulators rather than like yeah. the real thing. But you put the real thing in the hand, and 
and then the safety changes. Um, like, have you ever done? Have you done like forms with with sharp swords before? Like, oh yeah, kind of like uh, gone through. I do all. I do a lot with sharp swords. Um, I do partner drills with sharp swords quite often. Or when I was doing this regularly, I, quite often is not quite often anymore. But uh, when I did this regularly, I did sharp drills with people. I did um, honestly most of my solo drilling was with a sharp sword. And, uh, you know, I did, the Germans have a term called Spiegelfechten, it means uh, mirror fencing. It's essentially shadow boxing. You're, you're pretending you have an imaginary opponent and you're going through actions. And I would usually do that with a sharp. Um, it, so I, I, I very much heavily included sharps in my, my general training. And, uh, no, you're absolutely right. I, I say I am one of the people who rests uh, my blunt sword on my toe. And it's because when I was a kid, doing foil you were told to do that with your foil right you just point it there that way you're not waiting down there poking some die out (laughs) right Um, yeah 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 yeah. but the second i have a sharp in my head or in my hands um hopefully not in my head right (laughs) in my hand (laughs) very much i have a very big shift in um in attitude and posture because of that Um, i'm actually to a small degree i'm kind of scared of sharps which i don't view as a bad thing no, that's healthy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I train with them enough to make sure that I don't get lax about it, that I don't start treating it like a blunt. Oh. No, that's, that's, that's really good. I mean, I think that's important, right? I think, so we, we have a little bit of time to go on an aside here before we get to these last couple of questions. And I, I kind of want to do that real quick. Cause I actually think this is pretty interesting. So you, you were talking about like partner drills with sharp swords, especially when it comes to single-handed swords. Like we do see a few instances in uh, the Bolognese treatises where they talk about the swords biting one another, right? Like um, I think one in particular, Morato's uh, um, Badamente with his uh, Spada de Filo, uh, just the sword alone, um, and he's he talks about in I think it's the fifth part after he gives the defenses against the thrust, you're in Porta de Ferro Estrada, mm-hmm. you're going to do a falso that meets and bites into your opponent's sword. Right. And then you do a mezzavolta to the hand and you drive a Punta Drita, right? Um, so when you've been kind of experiencing with that, you know, we, we hear this all the time, sharp swords bite, that there's kind of like this different feeling, a tactile uh, feeling of, of sharp swords. Um, I know some people like to train sharp simulators, some don't. Um, but what has been your experience and how do you think that we could better understand our general training if we had that kind of frame of knowledge with training with sharps? Yeah, I, I do feel it is ultimately worthwhile for people to do, um, at least at some point, even if it's only a little bit. I know a lot of people are saying like, oh, you know, because you're moving so slow with sharps, it's not realistic. To me, saying it's not realistic is like saying um, you shouldn't practice footwork because when you're really fighting, you know, right. you've got to use handwork, right? You're isolating something to train when you're using sharps. So you are being way more careful, of course. You are uh, obviously keeping the safety even more paramount than with blunts. But there are little subtle things you start to notice about how a uh, blade slides on another blade, even if it's your edge against their flats. They're not biting, but they feel different. And you start getting a different kinesthetic feedback from it. Um, I have done a few things where we've gone a teensy bit faster, where we put on all our gear and um, 
you know, we were obviously being very controlled about it, but we went a little faster and we would find they don't bite quite as heavily when you add a little bit of speed to it. They still have some of that at the very least, a different friction to them. Right. Um, some people make it sound like they just stick together and suddenly your opponent's sort of stuck. When you add a little bit of speed, they don't really do that. Um, but there is a fraction of a second that they do. And for that fraction of a second, if you were training your art correctly, you can use that. So I feel like everyone who is long-term serious about swordsmanship should at least do it on occasion. Um, you know, obviously with people who you can trust and who are experienced, but you, it will only make, it'll only heighten your, um, your experience with it. It's, it's not going to be any kind of detriment other than you ding up your sharp swords more. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's really interesting. Um, mostly just cause I think, you know, it's a definitely a unique perspective that it's, it, you only have you, the only way to get it is to do it right, and obviously, yeah. you know, it's well outside most people's martial arts insurance. So, yeah, full full disclaimer there. At my fencing school, I didn't make that publicly known. Uh, right, we had our yeah. insurance, and uh, yeah, I'm yeah. sure any yeah, agent it, who came in and saw that would have had a heart attack that I was doing. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's one of those things where we just you know. Do it like you said. Do it with somebody you trust, and and, and yeah. also you know on the on your oh, on your own time. Yeah, um, but it's it it is really fascinating and interesting. Um, so you were talking a little bit about how like do you do you feel like like some of the bind actions like uh, that you've used, um, like you were talking about kind of binding on the edge, binding with the flat. We see that a lot, especially from more of like a KDF perspective, but. Um, do you see that some of the winding actions and some of the turns of the hand that we might see, um, with like the rapier or the side sword, uh, are kind of, do you feel like there's almost like a, a deliberate nature to them where you might have a different hand position simply because it either brings the edge into presence or it pulls the edge away so that way you're, you're flat on flat. I don't feel it's as deliberate as I know a lot of other people feel it is. Um, okay. To me, it's a lot more of uh, the more you feel it, the more actions just uh, become a little more natural. So I don't try to bind with a person where my edge is on their flat, but when it is in that position, I feel it and I f can make decisions based off of that. And this, the decisions also start becoming a lot more unconscious and, um, you know, obviously the majority of my fencing is done with blunts. I still have developed a better feel for when I'm touching the person's flat versus when I'm touching their blunt edge. And it just becomes something that uh, starts making actions more intuitive. So I don't, I know a lot of people say once people who are pro sharp training will say like, oh, it changes everything. And, you know, the moment the, the sharps touch, you instantly understand why you do that technique that way. I, I don't think it's that deliberate. It's just a matter of developing the, the sensitivity between the different, different ways your blades might just intersect and the different ways your blades might slide and, or not slide. And then feeling what is more appropriate to do from there. That's it. Awesome. 
that's that's good stuff. Stephen, do you want to take those last two questions? Yeah, yeah, I'm bringing on home here. Um, all right, so <clears throat> getting back to military fencing. So once the pointy sticks were set aside, who do you think would have had an advantage in one-on-one combat? The lands connector, the pikemen with their Kotzbauger, or the northern Italian infantrymen armed with a side sword? So I'd say whoever's luckiest, <laughs> because okay. um, let's face it, <laughs> it, the guy with his sun in his eyes is at a disadvantage, right? Yeah, There's yeah, okay. So yeah. many <laughs> factors that actually have nothing to do with skill um, in those types of engagements. Whoever has a better commander who has been able to position everyone into place. Right, um, right. I, I, another source that I don't know where it's from, but Tom Leone has quoted to me before. He uh, once brought up that um, in, um, in the Renaissance, we see four primary fields that people train for. They train for, um, they train for sports and for, right. for leisure. They train for warfare. They uh, they train for self defense, and they train for the duel. And the duel right. was considered the most deadly of those situations. And um, you know, for sport, of course, that's an obvious one. Self defense, there are things uh, that are outside the control of um, the fight. Well, maybe you draw a sword and the guy runs away. All right, right. But it brought it brought up that um, whatever the source was that he was quoting to me. In warfare, that might seem like it's the deadliest situation you can be in, but there are so many other factors that have nothing to do with fighting that deal with your survival or not. Um, And one of them I remember was uh, your commander may have maneuvered your army into a position where you have such a huge advantage that it doesn't matter if you're a good fighter or not. And likewise, the best fighter may be in the second rank and all all the fodder in the front are all dead and allowed um, allowed themselves to be thrown onto the spears so that the good fighters didn't have to do much work. Uh, and it had nothing to do with the fact that they're good fighters. <laughs> so when we, when we have questions like that between um, which one would fare better, I don't think it has anything to do with their training. I don't think it has anything to do with their, their combat. You know, when I, when I brought up the scenario where I was in Christian Cameron's test, didn't matter how good a fencer I was. I constantly just got killed just because I couldn't move enough. <laughs> you couldn't right? move, right? Or, or the guy in front of me clocked me with his spear. <laughs> it was on my okay. team. Just hit me in the face. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> so it's a little bit like fencing anyway, then. It's a, your, your commander is just simply trying to get you into a good position so that when things go crazy, you have the advantage and they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Stephen and I were laughing at each other, I think, because every time we, we come across this, we start thinking about a very specific battle in general that's coming up in our timeline. Um, <laughs> the Battle of La Mota or um, oh, Cremona. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of the like highlight. the perfect example of, of having like every advantage possible and then your commander <laughs> just making a really dumb decision, like taking an <laughs> unnecessary risk. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting, the the question of why he chose to do what he did. That's going to be one of the fascinating things that we're going to be looking at. So, you know, the cool thing, uh, you know, about doing the military history stuff of the 16th century is we get to run across little data points about what happens when Germans and Italians fight, you know, not just in the big crowded battlefield where luck is determinate, but, you know, in smaller situations or more chaotic situations where maybe skill is more dominant. Mm-hmm. We found a, a couple of interesting one where Lance Connects had uh, they had the Germans had 
destroyed the walls of Padua and were running inside and, you know, uh, looking to get in. And there was, turned out there'd be a second wall. And the Venetians just jumped down off the walls and chased the Lance Connects back. So I'm, I'm going one point on the, uh, <laughs> the Italians with the side swords over the uh, Germans with the Katzbogers there. That admittedly, could be a tad biased. But there was another interesting data point where they're, well, you know, one of the most common kind of fights that came up between infantrymen were not actually on the battlefield at all. Uh, it could often occur between guys on different sides where both sides argued over loot. And then, you know, you really, you're, you're dealing with some guys who have some high motivation here. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we find pretty much in almost every situation is the Bolognese uh, come out on top whenever there's a fight for loot. <laughs> <laughs> little, do, little dicey on the battlefield where they're probably wondering, eh, what's in it for me? Ah, but when they know what's in it for them, suddenly brave as lions. <laughs> yeah yeah and uh so, so yeah did you want to nail that last question joshua yeah and and to to add to that point too yeah. we've also found that in in general the most hated people um in the in the italian peninsula were the gascons so yeah sorry <laughs> i don't know what I, I don't know what the gascons did um but they were well, can widely hated well, they, yeah, they did a lot. There's pretty much two things you do to make people hate you a lot, one of which is appropriate to talk about, and that's yeah. looting. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So uh, poor D'Artagnan, he would have, uh, he yeah. definitely wouldn't have gotten along very well in the Italian peninsula. Um, so as mentioned before, today is St. George's Day, the saint famous for slaying a dragon. Uh, if you had to rescue a fair damsel from a dragon, how would you arm yourself, Bill? It would definitely be with a crossbow and a hide bomb. <laughs> what? <laughs> but if you look at if you look at so many of the images of Saint George and the dragon, the dragon, you're always like, oh, that poor thing. Right? It's like tiny. Right. <laughs> yeah. like Saint George on his horse, stabbing it all the way through its mouth. Um, I, w- I would want to hire one of those guys who was an alligator wrestler out in Florida. Uh, Have you ever uh, seen those shows? No, it sounds yeah. awesome though. Like where they're grabbing the alligator by the tail and pulling it, and the alligator's like, "Oh, leave me alone!" Right? <laughs> <laughs> Do all sorts of stuff, and now he's just like just laying there, just like, I'm, "All right, fine." You, know? you win. <laughs> it doesn't make you go, "Oh wow," you know. I'm rooting on for this alligator wrestler. It makes you just be like, "Oh, that poor alligator." <laughs> <laughs> just wants to take a nap. <laughs> I, you know, that makes me wonder. I wonder if maybe like a saltwater crocodile. I don't know if saltwater water crocodiles would be in the in the Mediterranean. But what if a saltwater crocodile just made its way across the Mediterranean and then it like up through the canals and ended really? up in Bologna? And oh. they were like, I mean, I think they would know what a crocodile was, but maybe maybe that was their dragon. Yeah, yeah. maybe a Komodo oh. dragon came in on a ship. There are so many very likely possibilities of it being something like a crocodile or, or an alligator because, number one, if we look at their drawings of a lion, there's lions all over Europe and none of them look like a lion, right? Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> because none of them had seen a lion from Africa. So it is very, very possible that someone at some point had traveled to an area and seen a crocodile or an alligator and then like, whoa, and then described it and then... Through word of mouth, it got transformed into a, a dragon. 
And so in Bologna, maybe he did bring something like that in. And honestly, when I was talking about those images of St. George, so many of them actually do look like crocodiles or alligators. Right. Yeah, look like yeah. something that is not that big. You know? So maybe someone at some point really did see one and said, there's a dragon. All right, let me draw it. And then they just got one and it just came in. I mean, maybe somebody brought it back as a pet and it survived the trip. Yeah, it, it very well could be true. Um, and, you, you know, know, if you lived in a time period before the internet and you'd been told right. a green scaly thing is a dragon and you saw a green scaly lizard, why would you think a dragon? Yeah, why, yeah, why would yeah. it not occur to you that it's a dragon? Yep. That further explains the British obsession with Egypt. Because there be dragons, there be dragons, (laughs) and you know we carry Saint George's cross into into Egypt, and then you know Egyptology and all that. I mean, it makes makes so much sense. We've learned so much more about the British in this (laughs) this podcast than I think we ever intended. Yep. (laughs) Well, um, last time I was in Rome, I was at the um, the Colosseum, and I was talking with one of the the tour guides there, and she was just sharing stories with me. And she told me of uh, one record, and I don't know who, but of um, someone who went into the uh, the Colosseum as as essentially the big hero, and uh, had his bow and arrow, and he was so good with these um, these broad bladed arrows, and they released these monsters in there. So the monsters were ostriches, but if you've <laughs> never seen an ostrich, that 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 of course is this terrifying gigantic bird-like beast yeah. and supposedly he was um he was taking these broad-bladed arrows and shooting them and beheading them and the crowd's going wild over this and if we take away the animal abuse side of the story um <laughs> that's such a like a fascinating thing that you're this hero goes in and fights these monsters and these crazy things start running around the coliseum and they look so horrifying and here's the hero drawing back his his bow and just beheading them I, you know you can imagine why the crowd was going crazy over this right if if we don't think <laughs> of the fact that those poor ostriches were just released and then just mutilated for the amusement of everyone. I mean, they were doing it to people. Might as well do it to ostriches, yeah, too. And they right. probably ate the ostriches yeah. when they were done. So, you know, that's fair. Yeah, they probably didn't eat the people. They probably just chucked their bodies. Stephen, after um, after we ended up talking to Richard Colonin, did you ever uh, go and try to learn about the uh, the Great Emu War down in I Australia? Did not. No, no, no I'm, I'm not familiar so with just the Great for, Emu War. Have you heard of that, uh, Bill? Have you heard of the no, Emu War? No. So there was a time after World War, I think it was either World War One. I, I think it was after World War I, um, where the Australian government um, had basically paid uh, a lot of their soldiers in land, um, you know, very old concept of paying soldiers in land right. and try, trying to get them to kind of like in their lives as farmers. Um, and uh, so they had given these guys land and um, they were just trying to settle like some of these more remote parts of Australia. And uh, they ended up having this developing this emu problem because I think a lot of the farms failed um, during the depression or something like mm-hmm. that. And basically all, all these emus got away and they started creating these giant herds of emus. And so it got so bad that the emus then were destroying like all the farmland and um, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't really reconcile the problem. And they tried to like, they tried to like have really liberal hunting permits to kill all the emus and everything like that. Either way, um, it got so bad that eventually they called in 
the Australian military to deal with the emu. They declared war on the war emu. War on the emus. <laughs> and so the Australian army comes in with machine guns, and they're trying to kill these like large swaths of the emu, and they keep getting pushed back and pushed back what? and pushed back. Yeah. And so the emus actually end up winning this war like <laughs> oh against the God, Australian man. army. Yeah. And it, it is like it is this it is the craziest thing. Oh you should, you should definitely read about it sometime. But yeah, the time when the Australian army declared war on the wow. emus and lost. <laughs> That's rough. Man. <laughs> I think they. Emus. I think they ended up running out of bullets. Is what happened. Okay. Is like they. The, wow. They just basically ran out of bullets and they couldn't contend with the emus anymore. Oh um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> but this is. Uh, this has been a great conversation, Bill. Yeah. We really appreciate Thanks, you coming Bill. on. Um, and yeah. we're gonna have to do this again uh, because we definitely want to hear about your adventure uh, <laughs> to go and uh, do all that stuff. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Bill. Take care, man. Take care. Good meeting you.